I am not Pastor Kenny. He is actually too famous for us this morning. No, he is being inducted into his high school's Hall of Fame this weekend. So he was at that ceremony and dinner last night. He's traveling back now. He'll be here for our business meeting in small groups this evening. But I do want to continue this morning the series that we started two weeks ago called The Next Step in Spiritual Formation, where we've been talking about your relationship, your personal relationship with Christ, and how you grow in your walk and in your relationship with Him. This is kind of the third step, since it's the third part of our series, really the second step. Step one was our introduction. But today we want to talk about obedience. And that's picking up on what we talked about last week as Pastor Kenny talked about Scripture and opened up Scripture for us as to what Scripture really is. And we talked about the value of that. If you were in our small groups last week, and I hope that you were, if not, you can come tonight. Tonight would be a great night to start, come, and be a part of our 530 small groups where we'll make this really practical, really real, and give you some tips and some things on how to implement these steps in your life. But as we looked last week at the value of Scripture, we determined the fact that the Word of God has value. And as we talked in our small groups, that value comes in two areas. It's both intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsically, this Bible is the Word of God. And not just any God, it is the Creator God of the universe. He is the sustainer of creation. He is the giver of life, the sustainer of life, the giver of eternal life. He is relational. He wants to relate to his creation, so he gave us his word. But he's also holy and perfect, so this word is perfect, and it never changes. Those are the intrinsic values of this Bible. That is why this book is valuable, and that alone should be enough. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe that the Bible is all of that? Do you believe that this really is the Word of God? If we do believe that, that alone should be enough to drive us to Scripture, to make us dig in and study and get to know what God has given us. But unfortunately, if we're honest, that in and of itself does not drive us to study Scripture. We as people are born selfish and very self-centered. So we need that motivation sometimes to get in. And so as we discussed in our small groups last week, it's that extrinsic value that really drives us to study. Because in the Bible we find a how-to. How do we walk this Christian life? How do we live the Christian life? How do we relate to other people? How do we love God? How do we serve? How do we minister? How do we do all of these things? It's there. But we also find a fix it. When we run into problems in our relationships, when we run into problems in our walk with Christ, when we run into problems with our spouse or at work with a coworker or our employer, we find solutions in Scripture for the problems that we run into in life. We also get a quick start. If you're like me, when you get something new, you have both the instruction or owner's manual and you have that three to four page quick start guide. Which one do you look at? Because you figure, you'll just figure it out as you go if you can get the thing started, right? So we go straight to the quick start guide. And the Bible is that. As we start in our walk with Christ, as we start a new chapter or a new part of our life, we go to Scripture oftentimes and find the basics and just the beginning steps. And we take off. And it's once we get into it and we get into the mess and we run into problems and we've got to troubleshoot things that we start to really dig in and take it for what it is. But we get that quick start. And God's not trendy. He started it all. You just didn't know it. But it's the original life hack. 
Okay, We don't have to go to Facebook. We don't have to go to Pinterest. We don't have to watch the TED Talks. It's here. This is the original life hack. If you want to know how to rein in your kids or rein in your family, rein in your time, rein in your finances, rein in all of these things, this is the original right here. It is full of life hacks. Get into it. If we'd spend as much time reading God's life hacks as we do watching them on the internet to see what other people have to say, we'd be in a much better place. But it's also an honest evaluation. We talked in our small group and used the idea of an x-ray. Sometimes we just need that x-ray in our lives. Sometimes we need to see ourselves how we really are, for what we really are. And this book gives us an honest evaluation, but sometimes that's what keeps us from this book, isn't it? We don't want to see what we really are and how we really are. It also gives us sage advice. God's word never changes, but we see it implemented through lives, throughout generations and generations and generations. As he gives us example after example after example, we can learn from this and not repeat the mistakes. But we also get that comfort from a friend. When things in life aren't going right, when things aren't going the way that we dreamed that they would, when our world comes crashing down, when there's just something going on that we can't even put into words and there's no one else we can trust with our heartache, there's comfort here that only God can give. It's all of those things. So let me ask you, do you believe that it provides all of those things this morning? Not only is it what he says it is, but do you believe it provides for us all of those things if we take advantage of it? So then that leads to the third question. Do we do what it says to do? Do we do what it says to do? And that brings us to the point we're at today. We're talking about obedience. Not being hearers of the word only, but doers also. Do we do what it says to do? It seems like a common sense question. If it is what we just said it is, and if it provides all the things that we said it just provides, why in the world wouldn't we do what it says to do? And that's really where we're going to spend our time today. Because if we're honest, we're not always so obedient. But here's the question, why? Why? When we do obey, why do we obey? Why do we obey what God's word says? But if we don't, why don't we? Why don't we? And that's what we're going to delve into and attempt to answer today. I want to use a couple of life examples, though, real quickly to kind of get you thinking in the same sort of way and bring you around to the couple reasons that I think we don't obey. One, let's, let's look at us with a doctor, especially men. Men, why do we hate going to the doctor? Because it always sounds something like this. Well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is you're alive. And then it goes downhill from there, doesn't it? But you know, this could be a doctor that we've known for years, that's treated us for years, that's treated our family for years. Doctor that we have all the respect in the world for. He's got the greatest credentials, incredible reputation. And when we go in, it's all different though, isn't it? Because when we go in and he says, well, you're going to have to start exercising and you're going to have to cut out the bacon and you're going to have to cut out the salts and the red meats and you're going to have to start, uh, you know, doing a little more than just sitting on the couch, thumbing through channels. And you're, you know, he starts giving us all these things we're going to have to change. What do we do? What's our response? Suddenly that well-respected, well-educated member of our family practically that we've known for years, it turns into this, well, what does he know? That little snot, he went to med school and now he thinks he knows everything. What, what do they really know, huh? Granddad smoked six packs of cigarettes every day for his 108 years of his life. And he was also a pig farmer and cured his own bacon. He ate it with every meal. And, you know, what does he know? You see, it becomes a confidence issue, doesn't it? 
Suddenly, this well-educated professional that we had all the confidence in the world in, we would let him do brain surgery, let him do open-heart surgery. Shoot, we let him operate on our spine, and he's only a podiatrist, right? But we would let him do anything. Suddenly, he doesn't know anything. We know better. See, we put our confidence on ourselves and what we know, and it's a misplaced confidence issue. But what about our spouse? What about our spouse? What do you do when your spouse says the only thing that she wants for Christmas is a vacuum cleaner? You laugh, but my wife did that to me, okay? Our first year of marriage, spending Christmas with her family, she set me up. The only two things that she said she wanted for Christmas that year were a new vacuum cleaner and a new set of pots and pans. Guys, what do you never get for your wife for Christmas anniversary or birthday? Something to use around the house, right? Especially when you're spending your first Christmas of marriage with her family. But that's what she asked for. And what do you do if your wife asks for a vacuum cleaner for Christmas? Do you buy her a lawnmower? Why not? What would that communicate? If she wanted a vacuum and you bought a lawnmower, what would that communicate? It would say, I don't listen to you. I don't respect you. I don't care about your wishes or what you want. I would rather give you what I want to give you. What is that really saying? I'm more in love with me than I am with you. See, it's an issue of misplaced love. I might like you. I might care about you. I might enjoy our time together. But if I'm not listening to you and doing what you ask, I I don't love you. I love me and what I want. Well, what about our kids? Do any of your kids obey all the time perfectly? Yeah, every, I'd like to co-author a book with you if it doesn't happen. But why? Our kids love us, right? Your kids undoubtedly love you as their parent. So if obedience is an issue of love, then why don't our kids obey perfectly? You see, your kids love you. The problem is they love themselves more. Amen? When you say, no, you can't have chocolate cake for breakfast, and they eat it anyway, it's not because they don't love you, it's because they love themselves more. They're going to treat themselves. But this is where we get to the crooks of it. You see, they they have a lot of love, it's just misplaced love. And that's our issue with disobedience. The reason we don't obey is that either our love is misplaced or our confidence is. Either our love is misplaced or our confidence is. And we're going to develop both of those, but we're going to start with the second one first. We're going to look at misplaced confidence this morning. Scripture has a lot to say about who we are and where our confidence should lie. So if we're going to remedy this issue of disobedience, we've got to start here, understanding why we don't obey. And we've got to start there and fix it at the root. So what does Scripture actually have to say about us? We're going to look at a few things this morning. Go ahead with the first one there. We see it at the very beginning. In the garden, we find the curse of knowledge. You think, wait, now wait, how could knowledge be a curse? God gave us knowledge. Yes, but knowledge became our curse as many times our strengths and our abilities do. Think about how Satan tempted Adam and Eve. What was the one thing they were not supposed to do? And look at what he says. But for the serpent, he said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing 
good and evil. What was this that they weren't supposed to be eating? It was the fruit of what tree? The knowledge of good and evil. In other words, here's what Satan did. He came to Eve and said, God has given you all of this amazing stuff, but why doesn't he want you to eat of this tree? Because he knows when you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. See, God's holding something back from you. God's keeping you down. If you had this knowledge, you would be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. You're dependent on him for something. You don't need to do that. If you would eat of this tree, you would know yourself. And so immediately the wheels start turning. Well, why doesn't God want me to eat from that tree? Why doesn't God want me to have that knowledge? Why would God want to keep me in the dark about something? Why wouldn't God want me to be like him? Why wouldn't God want me to be the best me that I can be? Why wouldn't God want the best plan for my life? Why wouldn't he want me to have everything that I can have? You know what? God has been great and he's provided a lot of things and he's done a lot for me. But you know what? I'm not so sure I can trust this God now. What if there is something out there more? And what is that? He's starting those questions and we see that confidence erode, right? And so what do they do? They eat of the tree. They make the decision to be all that they can be, to do what seems right in their eyes, and they eat of the tree. And there's the beginning of our misplaced confidence. But the Bible goes on and lets us know very quickly that man's way is not always right. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. And in Adam and Eve's case, it was very literal. It brought about a curse. It brought about death to immortal beings. But in our case, it brings a whole lot of other death and destruction. When we start to look at ourselves and our plans and the way we think things will work out best, when we try to know better than God, when we try to discern what's really the best for our lives without being able to see the whole picture, it always ends in chaos and destruction. And we bring about death. We bring about the fulfillment of this curse, this sin curse in our life. And death touches everything that we're involved with whenever we do things according to our own plan. You say, I'm not talking literal death. No, I'm talking literal separation from God, right? That, that's truly, in its essence, what death is. God is life. Death is separation from life. It's separation from God. And as we go about our own path and do our own things, and we start trying to do it our way, we separate our lives more and more from the plan that God had for us and what he intended in our lives. And everything is touched by death. But then scripture goes on and says God's ways in Isaiah 55, 9 are higher than ours. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says you think you know, but just as I am so much higher removed from the earth, I have everything in my perspective. My thoughts and my ways and my plans are higher than yours. And while everything looks right this way to you here on earth, and while you think this way and things seem this way, I'm removed from your life and your circumstances. I see the bigger picture. And my ways are higher than yours. The end game that I've already thought out is higher than yours. You can't fathom what it is I've planned. And yet we don't place our full confidence in him. So he goes on. 
And we get this question in Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of a man that you care for him. What is man? When we think about how far God is actually removed and how high he is above his creation, what is man? Why would he take the time? Why would he even bother? We are so seemingly insignificant in the whole plan of things. And yet we think we can put our confidence in ourselves and our abilities and our mind and our understanding. And when it comes to issues of obedience, we say, God, that's great. But from what I can see, it looks like this would be better. From where I am, it just seems like this would be a much better plan and a much better way to do things. See, we have this misplaced confidence. But then we run into another issue. God takes Job. In the midst of all the questioning and all the confidence issues and his friends who think they know so much and say, well, here's why you're struggling with this and here's why you're struggling with that. And God says, okay, Job, here's the answer. Let's just have some me and you time right now. He says, Job... Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me, if you have any understanding at all, answer these questions. And God begins to go on and says, Job, where were you whenever I set the boundaries for the ocean? Job, where were you whenever I hung the stars in the sky? Job, where were you whenever I set the planets spinning in order? Job, where were you when I created the beasts of the field? Job, where were you whenever I wove all of this plan together? If you can understand it all, please... Tell me. Please share. See, if there's any doubt in our mind as to where our confidence should be, it should be in the one who doesn't just know it all, but created it all and set it all in order. I mean, would you go to the watchmaker and tell him how to fix his creation when it breaks? You can't even begin to understand the intricate detail and all the pieces that he has in there and exactly where they're supposed to be. Even if you opened it up and looked, if you open it up and you're looking at a broken watch, there are gears and springs out of place that only he knows where they started out at. And yet we do that with God. We look at this life that he gave us, this plan that he put in motion, and we say, God... I know you're leading me this way, but don't you really think this would be better? God, I trust you with all of that, but you seem like you're really missing it over here. So this, I'm going to take and do myself, my way. And see, our disobedience comes out of this misplaced confidence. But what about misplaced love? Three times in the book of John, turn with me there to John chapter 14. Jesus addresses this issue. He's speaking to his disciples. It's one of the last serious conversations that he's going to have with them. He leaves them the newest commandment, he says, to love each other as he has loved them. He goes on to talk about the relationship that he has with the Father, that the Father has with him, the relationship that we can have with the two of them and the Spirit and the way he's going to be involved in everything once Jesus leaves. And then we get down into chapter 14 and verse 23. And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commands. 
And just in case his point wasn't clear in chapter 15, still in the midst of that discourse, over in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And just for emphasis, a third time in verse 14, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. Notice how Jesus ties love and obedience here together. Think about the illustration with your spouse. If your spouse says, if you want to show me you love me, here's how you can do it. And you do something else. What did you just say? I don't love you. If my wife says, I absolutely hate when you sit on the end of the bed and pick your ears with your toes. It could happen. And I continue to do it anyway. What am I saying? I don't care. I care more about me. Is that love? Not at all. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now notice, though, there's a key word here. He says, if. If. Notice, we do not have to love God. It is not required. If it was required, it would not be love. Nowhere does God say, you have to love me. Instead, God says, I want you to love me because I love you. I want you to realize the incredible plan I have for your life. I want you to realize that I gave up everything and sacrificed my own life for your sin so that you could be reunited in a relationship with God the Father and live the life that he had planned for you to live. But you don't have to love me. I did that anyway to show you my affection and my love for you in hopes that you would return it. But you don't have to love him. It's not required. But when we don't obey, what we're doing is we're not loving him. So what we're saying, we love something else. If I don't obey, I love me more. If I don't obey, I love my comfort more. If I don't obey, I love my material things more. If I don't obey, I love my relationships more. If I don't obey, I love my family more. You say, now wait a minute. It is entirely possible to love more than one thing. I can love my spouse and football. What if your spouse makes you choose? You know, I can love my family and my career, but what if your family dictates that you choose? I love my neighborhood And I love God, and God is telling me he wants me to move. Which one do you choose? You see, Jesus puts this into perspective. Remember what he said. This is one of the hardest sayings Jesus ever gave. He says, you must hate your mother and father. He says, if you're going to love me, if you're going to follow me, you must hate your mother and your father. Now notice he was talking comparison here. He doesn't mean you burn bridges, cuss your parents out, move out, never do. No, no, no. What he's saying is this. There is nothing in your life that you would not sacrifice in your love for him if he asked. Your career cannot come before him. Your spouse cannot come before him. Your children cannot come before him. Your car cannot come before him. Your favorite hobby cannot come before him. Okay, Your golf score cannot come before him. Your neighborhood cannot come before him. 
Nothing can come before him. And compared to how much you love him, everything else seems like hate. Because you would be willing to part with any of it for him. So when we look at it that way, yeah. If we love anything else to the point where we won't give it up to him, we don't love him. We don't. He he will not be loved second best. It's all or it's nothing. Because he gave all or nothing. And he doesn't require you to love him. But if you do, it's all or nothing. That's Christianity. It's literally laying down our lives, being crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. It's giving up everything. That's what he calls us to. You see, we come into this place where when it's an issue of obedience, our love is often misplaced. Our love is often misplaced. We're going to jump now and look at some examples from Scripture of some people who had issues with obedience because of love or confidence. Hopefully it will make this a little clearer. Each one of these people represents someone or at least a stereotype that we may know or we may identify with. Hopefully we'll see ourselves here and see where God's dealing with us. Here in great moments of disobedience, we have first the peacemaker, a.k.a. the conflict avoider. Someone who knows the right thing to do, but struggles doing it because of the feathers that it's going to ruffle or the boats that it's going to rock. The relationships that it may strain. Now mind you, these are people in Scripture. These these are not the villains in Scripture. These are not outside characters in Scripture. These are the main characters. These are the people we teach our children about every week in Sunday school, every year in VBS. Yet they struggle with obedience. For the same reasons you and I do. Maybe you worry about what people are going to think. Maybe you worry about comfort. Maybe you worry about rocking the boat and making some waves. Maybe you identify with Abraham. See, Abraham struggled with misplaced love. When God called him to leave home and go to a land that he was going to show him, remember what he says, Abraham, I want you to take Sarah, your wife, and leave everything, family, everything behind, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Abraham obeyed almost completely. He didn't have a problem leaving house. He didn't have a problem leaving job. He didn't have a problem leaving in-laws. But what he did have a problem leaving was his nephew Lot. If you'll remember, Lot's father had died. And Abraham had no children. Lot very much would have been like a son to him. And so when God told him to go, surely God didn't mean Lot too. And so Abraham takes him along. Because he has a problem with misplaced love. He couldn't divorce that feeling that he had for Lot, that tie that he felt he had to him, to be completely obedient with what God was calling him to do. He thought he was doing Lot a service and doing something better by taking Lot with him so he could provide for him that was like his own child. And look at what it cost him in the end. There's family tension there. As both of them grow older and gain more And the land can't support both of them there together, and they have to part ways. If you remember, Lot goes towards Sodom. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking for Abraham. 
And eventually, Lot finds himself in Sodom. And in the midst of everything that's going on there, at one point, Lot is even captured by invading kings as they come and take Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring cities and lead the men and women away captive and take everything. And Abraham has to go to the rescue. But if you remember, after destruction comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, it has even longer-lasting ripples than that. Lot had two daughters who had no husbands and did something despicable with their father. And out of that, there were children. And out of those children grew tribes of people who would live there in that region and later would be problems for the Israelites. See, for generations to come, this one time that Abraham had misplaced love, this one area where he couldn't completely obey, cost the Israelites generations later. But Abraham also had a problem with misplaced confidence. Maybe you remember Sarah, his wife, who was an exceedingly beautiful woman, so much so that Abraham feared for his life when he would go into neighboring countries because he was afraid that the kings of the neighboring countries would kill him to take his wife. So he compromised just a little, right? Told a half-truth that she was his sister so that they would leave him alone and maybe they'd prosper by these kings and their affection for Sarah. Remember the second instance that this happened. The first was Pharaoh in Egypt, but the second instance of this was King Abimelech. Abimelech takes Sarah in, but before he can consummate anything there, God reveals to him that Sarah is indeed Abraham's wife. And so now Abimelech has a decision to make. Does he do what's honorable in God's sight and give Sarah back to Abraham? And does Abraham do what's honorable and own up to the truth and fess up to the lie that he's told? And see, what's interesting is as you read this, and they both choose to do the right thing. It says, Abimelech offers gifts to Abraham for taking his wife as restitution, even though he had done nothing wrong. And Sarah goes back to be with Abraham. But what's curious is there's this little phrase in there. It says, and so God opened the wombs of the women of the household of Abimelech, whom he had made barren. Abraham's sin, his lie, his compromise, his misplaced confidence in God was going to cost Abimelech and his family any future offspring for something that Abraham had done and made Abimelech party to. See, what Abraham had done was to say, God, I trust you completely to move me, to uproot me from home and take me somewhere where I've never been. God, I trust you completely when you say you're going to make me a great nation. But God, I don't have confidence at all in your ability to protect me when it comes to somebody wanting to kill me for my wife. How ridiculous is that? How could God make him a great nation if he's dead? And yet, he has that lapse in confidence in God. And he disobeys. We see another example in this, another well-known figure in the Bible. Mr. We've always done it this way. You didn't know he was in Scripture, did you? We know him. We've seen him. We see him in our families, at work, in our churches. We've always done it that way. It's always worked this way before, so why change anything now? I'm talking about Moses. If you'll remember, as the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, at one point they're complaining because there's no water to drink. And God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to take your staff, I want you to strike the rock, and water's going to come forth. And it did. Now think, understand that. He hit a rock with a stick and water came out. Not just a little bit, enough to feed thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites in a dry and barren land. 
Years go by. They're wandering through the wilderness. They find themselves at the same spot in the same situation again. And this time God says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock this time. Misplace confidence. God, you want me to what? Speak to the rock? Now, is that any more unbelievable than hitting a rock with a stick? You know? But he says, I want you to speak to the rock in the presence of all these people, and I'm going to provide. But in this lapse of confidence, Moses takes a stick and he did what worked before, and he struck the rock. You think, big deal. It was. Because it robbed God of the glory that he intended to get in that situation. And so what did it cost Moses? There's no admission into the promised land. He had put up with these people in the wilderness for 40 years. They were right there on the edge of the wilderness. They could look across and see where they were going. They were in the home stretch. Moses fumbles the ball and doesn't cross the goal line. No admission. Because he robbed God of the glory he intended to have. Because in that moment, his confidence was misplaced. We see yet another, the practical patriot. This is a man who failed in both a misplaced love and misplaced confidence. A man who loved his country and his countrymen and wanted to see them do well. And a man who thought that he had a lot of common sense. He knew the best thing to do in the situation. We're talking about King Saul. Two different times he disobeys God and two different times this declaration is made that the throne is being taken from him. That the kingdom is taken from him. And not just from him, but in one instance God even said, I'm taking the throne from you and this day I surely would have established your heirs, your offspring on the throne of Israel forever. But buddy, you blew it. I'm taking it from you and from your legacy. You say, well, what did he do? If you remember, at one point, the Israelites were getting ready to go into battle against an army that was larger and better outfitted than theirs. And God said, I want you to go up and I want you to go to war anyway, but I want you to wait for the prophet to get there. He's going to come and he's going to make a sacrifice. Do not go into war until he gets there and until sacrifice is made. So Saul is being obedient. He's waiting. And he's waiting. But as he's waiting these days for the prophet to get there, men start to desert. They think that there's problems. They think that there must be something going on behind the scenes. They're worried. Their confidence in Saul is leaving. Their confidence in God is leaving. The enemy's looking bigger and it's looking stronger and it's looking meaner and uglier every single day that they're there. And so men are leaving and they're going back home. And Saul looks around and thinks, I don't want my countrymen taken over. I don't want to be slaves and servants to these people. I don't want to see men lost and battled. I don't want to go in there and get completely routed. See, he had a love for his countrymen that superseded his obedience to God. So what did he do? He offers the sacrifice himself. It made sense, right? It was the most practical thing to do. Another instance is whenever they go into battle against the Amalekites. And God says, when you get to the Amalekites, I had pronounced a curse on them hundreds of years before. They've been a thorn in the side of the Israelites. They've been waiting. Their sin has been fulfilled. Today is their day of judgment. When you go in to defeat the Amalekites, I want you to destroy them completely. Wipe everything out. Leave no trace of them. So Saul goes in the battle. A glorious victory. But what does he do? 
He keeps the best of everything. Why? To offer it as a sacrifice to God. Because surely God will be pleased with this huge sacrifice of all the best that they had taken from the Amalekites. Instead, what does God say? Don't you realize that obedience is better than sacrifice? Just do what I'm asking you to do. But you see, Saul in his own mind had this big plan. This is what God would want. Who cares if this is what he's telling me he wants? Surely this is going to make him happy. See, I know so much more than God. I know what would please God more than God knows what would please God. And so this is what I'm going to do. Misplaced confidence. What about Mr. Better Than You? He has a problem with misplaced love. Talking, of course, about Jonah. If you remember, God told him to go and to preach a message of redemption and repentance to the Ninevites, Israel's sworn enemies. These were awful people. These were people who, when they captured you, would take you out to the desert, dig a hole to put you in, bury you up to your chin, pull your tongue out of your mouth and drive a stake through it into the sand and leave you there to die of thirst after days of being exposed in the sun, all the while the birds would land on you and literally peck your eyes out. These were the people that God wanted Jonah to go and to preach to. And here's the thing, it wasn't a problem with misplaced confidence because Jonah even told God, there is no doubt in my mind that when I preach the gospel message to them, they will come to you in repentance and you will save them. You'll forgive them. See, his problem wasn't one in confidence. His problem was, God, they don't deserve for you to save them. God, I love you and these are people that you love, but I can't get behind you on this one. God, I want no part of it. Did Jonah really love God? Or did he love his desire for revenge more? He almost cost thousands of souls their eternal lives. People that God desired to save. But Jonah thought he was better than everybody. God, you want me to go where? You want me to move into what neighborhood so that I can be a presence there and a light there? You want me to give up this job and go where? Because there are co-workers that need to hear about you. You want my kids in what school? You want me to talk to who? They'll probably just spit in my face and slam the door. Those people don't deserve it. See, we hear that. We think that when we have misplaced love. We have one more. Mr. Bigger is better. You all know those people, right? God's plans are big plans. God's gifted me. God's given me talents and skills and education. God's got something great for me. And that's what Naaman said. Remember, he comes down with a skin disease, leprosy. And there is no cure. But he has a little servant girl, a slave girl from Israel. He said, you know, back home in Israel, there's a prophet who truly is a man of God. 
And if anyone has a way to heal you, if anybody has healing, God has healing, you need to go and talk to this man. So Naaman gets this big caravan together, or these elaborate gifts, make this huge procession, this big parade to go to Israel and find the man of God. And when he gets to the man of God, the man of God doesn't tell him to do something big and elaborate. Instead, what does the man of God tell him to do? Go down to this little insignificant river. Muddy, dirty river. The Jordan River. And I want you to dip seven times and you'll be healed. Mr. Bigger is better says, no way. That's not what I came here for. So he gets in a huff and he gets all his stuff together in his caravan. He turns it around and they're headed back home. And on the way back home, one of the guys in the caravan said, sir, if, if I may, if you would have gone to this man of God and he would have told you to hike to the peak of the tallest snow-capped mountain, find the flaming eagle and bring back the golden egg, you would have gone to any length to do anything as elaborate as he may have said. He just asked you for something simple. Why don't you try it? So Naaman does. Naaman comes to his senses and he goes back and he tries it. And he realizes that the only place that we can put our confidence and have any hope in our healing, any hope in forgiveness, any hope for life, is in the creator God of the universe who's calling us into relationship with himself. He dips himself seven times in the Jordan and what does he get? healing, but he almost missed it. Almost. My question for you today is this. Where's your confidence? Where's your confidence? Is it in how much you know, how much common sense you have, how practical you are, the gifts that God has given you, the abilities that he's given you, how good a person you are, all the charities that you donate to, all the good that you do, the good neighbor that you are, how many people's lawns you mow without being asked, the fact that you've never cheated on your taxes or you only cheated once. What is your confidence based in? One, what is your confidence in for salvation? Because if it's in any of those things, you're out of luck. You're out of luck. We cannot be good enough. We can't do enough good. We can never do anything to wipe out our own sin debt. See, our confidence has to be in God for that. Has to be in the work that Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross for our sin. But once we've gotten that salvation, why does anything change? Why do we think then we can put our confidence back in our abilities? Back in what we can do? Back in our Sunday school attendance? Back in how many hours we volunteer at the church? Back in how many tires we change for strangers? We cannot put our confidence back in us once we placed it in God for salvation. It has to remain in Him. But when it's misplaced, we start to disobey. When we think we know better than God, we start to disobey. When we think, God, I trust you with all these areas of my life, but with my entertainment choices, I just don't trust that you're going to make the right ones for me. I really enjoy Game of Thrones, and if you take that away, then I'm not going to have anything left. See, we don't have confidence in God. We, we don't trust Him with all of the parts of our life. Remember, He's all or nothing. And then let me ask, where's your love today? Where's your love? Are there those things in our life that we just refuse to let go of because we love them so much? We love our pornography 
and we don't want to let that go. We, we love that little flirtatious affair that we have at work, and we don't want to let that go. We love this relationship that we're in, this group of friends that we have, and, and we're not willing to let that go. We love this neighborhood that we're in, this career that we built for ourselves, this lifestyle that we've afforded ourselves. We love all of that. God, I love you, but I love this more. Where is your love this morning? And you see, as you sit here, there, there are things that have popped into your mind. I didn't put them there. I didn't call your spouse and ask what I should preach on today, what illustrations I should use. I'd like to do that sometimes, but I, I won't. God has brought those things to your mind. And so my question is, is what's your next step in obedience? That thing that you're thinking about, that thing that you were hoping I wouldn't say, that thing that you were hoping I'd leave alone so you could walk out of here and say, well, he never talked about that. God brought it up. That's the area that he's working with today. That's the thing that he's wanting you to change. That's the thing that he wants to work on. The question is, is it confidence? Do you not trust God with your life? Do you not trust that when he says he has a plan to bring you both a hope and a future? Do you not trust that whenever he says he's gone on to do things and plan things and prepare things for us that are beyond our capability to even imagine? Do you you not have confidence that he can deliver on that? Or do you just love yourself and those other areas of your life more? And you just won't let go. Can I tell you this? He loves you more. And he's not going to take anything out of your life that needs to be there. He's not going to ask you to give up anything that he doesn't have something better instead. He's not going to lead you anywhere where he's not going to be. He might lead you right to the front line where the spiritual battle is fierce and the enemy is raging all around you. But you know what? He's going to be right there in the midst of it. Waiting, waiting for the enemy to assault you so he can step up and have your back and come out even bigger and more glorious on the other side. He wants to do that for his name's sake. So he will. What's your next step in obedience? Maybe today you need to come after service and you need to come pray about something. Maybe you need to come talk to me about something. Maybe you're here today and your next step in obedience is you need to come and just give up your life and say, I have never really trusted Christ with my life. I've never really given it to him and today is the day. He died for me. He died for my sin. I want to die to myself and live for him. Maybe maybe that's your step of obedience. That has to be the first step. has to be. This morning... As we leave, don't leave here without dealing with God and knowing your next step. Well, that's all I've got. You'll be dismissed in just a moment. I do need a few ushers to come, though. If you would, don't forget.